independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. You're listening to Green Dreamer, which is a community-supported show, and this episode is also sponsored by Made Trade, one of the very few consciously curated online stores that I recommend to my loved ones for everything from home goods to clothing, accessories, and holiday gifts. In addition to their curation of thousands of ethically made and earth-minded products, they just published some really helpful gift guides on their website, and I'm especially appreciating the one titled Eco-Friendly gifts under 150, which features these triangular reclaimed wood serving boards, jewelry made out of recycled metals, this handwoven colorful scarf made with heritage techniques by artisans in Kulu, India, and more. As I mentioned before, Maytrade offsets emissions from all of their shipping, and they also support localized regenerative textile systems with every purchase. So if you plan to buy handcrafted and responsibly made gifts for yourself or for loved ones this season, I highly recommend checking out Made Trade, and you can get 10% off your first order at madetrade.com slash green dreamer. That's M-A-D-E-T-R-A-D-E dot com slash green dreamer. Anyhow, if you're relatively new to the show, welcome. We now have over 280 episodes waiting for you. And if you're not sure where to begin, we do have an Embark newsletter created just for you that will basically recommend 30 of our top episodes and some of my favorites as well to you across a wide range of topics. And these will be sent to you through your email three days a week for 10 weeks straight. If you want to sign up for this, you can find it at greendreamer.com slash Embark. We are currently in between our fall season and the upcoming winter season of the show, which will begin in two weeks. But during these off weeks, we've been bringing back some past conversations really pertinent to this time. So for example, we have a reflect episode on the psychology of materialism that kind of helps us to understand why we might be innately wired to want more stuff. And that published two weeks ago to accompany a season that is hyper-focused on consumerism in this dominant culture. We have another Reflect episode that published right before this one on revitalizing native foods and re-identifying North American cuisine to accompany Native American Heritage Month throughout November with some context in that episode around what we should know about um, the real history behind Thanksgiving. And then today, with many celebratory feasts coming up for many of us um, this holiday season where food is going to be so central to what brings us all together, we are republishing an episode today with Tristram Stewart on our global food waste crisis to revisit what the key drivers behind it might be and what we can do to support a more circular system. So if you're ready, Green Dreamer, take a deep breath and let's get started. I grew up on the land. We grew 
our own food. My father and I lived alone together for some years of our childhood. He grew all the vegetables. I, I got my own pigs and chickens. And the way in which humans can interact with the land to produce food in ways that is actually good for nature, good for wildlife, that possibility was present in my mind right, right from that early age. So as a teenager, keeping these animals, I, I didn't want to buy livestock feed on the market. It was very expensive. I already knew that we were chopping down the Amazon rainforest to grow livestock feed. And I went to my school kitchens and asked if I could take all the waste that my school friends weren't eating. And I went to the baker in the village and, and asked the same, and the greengrocer, and a farmer who was wasting potatoes because they were the wrong shape or size for supermarkets and everywhere I looked there was piles of food waste perfectly good actually for human consumption I went to the supermarkets they didn't even want to talk about the amount they were wasting and I went around the back and I looked in their huge dumpsters and <laughs> saw piles of perfectly good food all being locked away and sent off to landfill and that was the exact antithesis of everything that I had grown up with, where the beanstalks on my dad's garden would become pig feed, and I would give my father as a barter the pig manure to go on his garden, and that closed system where everything replenishes each other, that's the way it should be. And in mm. fact, what we've built with the industrial food system is this extractive, linear system that just mines nature, mines the soil, destroys habitat, to grow more and more food. And it has become the single biggest way in which humans have been damaging nature. Food production and land use mm. is the single biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions. It's by far the biggest cause of deforestation. It's the main reason why we are in the middle of the mass species extinction event that is threatening life on Earth. It's by far the biggest user of fresh water. The list goes on. Food production is a total catastrophe. And yet, food is also potentially the way in which we could, if we did it right, undo most of those problems. Mm. So it's not food production and land ownership in of themselves what is problematic. It's the way that we're currently doing things. Right. So there's potential for us to use this in a positive way that is beneficial to the environment. Exactly. We already know how to do food in a way that creates habitat rather than destroys it, that puts carbon back in the ground. That's what plants do every year. They suck up carbon from the atmosphere and stick it into biomass. If we can capture that and put it into the ground in the long term, that's one of the biggest possible ways of tackling climate change available to us. Uh, we know how to do farming in ways that puts water back into the water table rather than sucks it out. We know how to do it in a way that produces healthy, accessible food for all. The problem is that we're doing exactly the opposite, both by allowing corporate power to regard nature as an extractive resource to maximize profits and by having subsidy systems that indeed incentivize farmers to farm in exactly the way that we know produces ecological meltdown and huge amounts of unhealthy food that causes, on the other side, a mass public health crisis in the form mm. of obesity and overconsumption. So we're doing food in exactly the wrong way, owing to entrenched profit 
oriented business models that do not align with the interests of human health or planetary health. This definitely doesn't sound very smart. And given that we already knew these regenerative practices, you touched on how industrialization played a big role in this, but what went wrong? So how did we come to have such a dysfunctional system that is so extractive rather than supportive of our health and the environment? Well, the underlying reason is that the single most dominant organizing principle of the world economy and indeed societies all over the world is what we can call financial maximization. The legal obligation that companies have to their shareholders to deliver maximum financial returns. Now, I have nothing against profits in and of themselves. I run a company that aims to make profit. The problem is the completely untrammeled way in which that profiteering motive is being allowed to essentially borrow from nature and borrow from future generations in ways that are totally unsustainable. If you think of all of the debt that results in financial crises and has done for the last several decades, all of that debt combined is dwarfed by the massive debt that the human economy as a whole has on nature. We're continually borrowing from natural capital and ultimately nature will want to be paid back. And I think that is the underlying problem. Uh, the question is, can we rewire our economy to displace financial maximization as the single organizing principle? I believe that is possible. It's relatively recent. I think we can hope for a future in which it has been dislodged. We must hope so, because failing to dislodge it, by all accounts, will result in a planet that is devoid of most of the natural systems, most of the species, most of the natural beauty that planet Earth is currently home to, as well as serious risk of harm to the human species. Mm. Now, given that most of that is being done in the name of a production system that for sure serves the interests of a very, very wealthy and powerful elite, but does not serve the interests of the mass of human society, let alone the rest of nature, that should give us hope that, that the many, uh, we are the giant, we the citizens of the world. We are the giant that co-create this economy. And we can use our power. If we wake up in time, we can use our power to rebuild an economy around what is sensible and sustainable, both for humans and for nature. And whilst I think we're running out of time to do that very, very quickly, alarmingly quickly, almost to the point of total despair, I do believe there is still hope and we must use all of our energy to bring about that future. Definitely. So it sounds like we do have a broken system to begin with, where corporations have to focus on maximizing shareholder value as the very top priority. But in addition to that, in our current system, we're also undervaluing the true value of our natural resources. I even hesitate to call them natural resources. A natural resource implies that it is there to be used as a unit of economic value. 
Now, of course, I understand the logic of ecosystem services, natural capital as the underlying kind of way of putting a value on, on nature. And I think up to a point, it's useful to monetize the value of things so that you can speak the language of economists and point out to national governments that when they save £100,000 here, they cost in the long term £100 million over there in environmental damage. And that is useful. I think of nature as nature, though, and as irreplaceable. If you lose a species, that's gone. It's like you set fire to the Louvre or one of the great museums of of the world. Mm. You could put a value on all of the art that has been destroyed, but it wouldn't really capture what you've lost. And at the moment, we have sev several of the world's most incredible museums literally on fire, burning under our feet. It, it, I'm talking about the natural world, the incredible variety and diversity of life on Earth. They are literally being wiped off the face of the planet forevermore. And, and nothing could ever bring them back. Our house is on fire and we're kind of standing around drumming our fingers and speculating that maybe we can build a new house in the future. But it's time now to get the hoses out and try and, try and extinguish this raging mm. wildfire. Do you think it's possible to move forward to separate out these interests? So we know, for example, nature is truly invaluable, also because the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So it's really impossible, like you said, to put a value on it. But society is run by this economy that is hyper-focused on monetary value. So how can we integrate the two to be more respectful to nature? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's lots of ways we can do that as individuals in the way that we consume. And I think probably the audience is fairly familiar with the basic steps that we can all do to reduce our our load on the environment, whether it's through the food that we eat, eating a more plant-based diet and wasting less, whether it's the way in which we vote, voting for governments that will look after planet Earth rather than helping corporations despoil it for the maximum amount of profit, but also in the businesses that we support. I've built a business, Toast Ale, whose ultimate service is to use a waste product, bread that is being produced and surplus to requirement, still perfectly fresh, being thrown away. We turn that through fermentation and natural preservation process into beer. By doing so, we've produced a system that, yeah, essentially, it's a bit like a car that uses a third less fuel. We're, we're, we're using a third less input to produce beer than any other beer available. And then, although we are a profit-making company, we are built to donate 100% of our distributable profits. This is the what would be a shareholder dividend to donate 100% of that instead to charities such as the one I founded, Feedback, but others around the world, whose core objective it is to rewire the food system so it becomes a sustainable one rather than a destructive one. Now, that is still within the capitalist kind of framework, but there's nothing stopping us creating businesses in that mold that do direct good through their core activities and produce value for society and for nature through the, the way in which they generate revenue. Mm. I believe it is possible 
to build an economy that is in line with what we all need. And by need, I mean actually need rather than just the kind of need that we talk about when we say, well, we need 100 cans of Coca-Cola because we've successfully created demand for that need, which is how the economy works at the moment. The other thing is, it feels like instead of humans today being resourceful in terms of making use of whatever we can get from nature and letting that natural supply and whatever's available influence and even limit our consumer choices, we've disconnected consumers from the source and we're letting consumer demand dictate what is valuable, what nature should provide for us and what has no market value and therefore may be wasted. So what are your thoughts on how consumer tastes, trends, preferences and values may be contributing to food waste without us really thinking about it? Well, if you think about that in terms of the food system, what we have at the moment globally, particularly in North America and and Western Europe, is a grocery supply chain that is dominated by supermarkets. And the principal marketing tool of supermarkets is not their online ads, it's not their television commercials, it's the supermarket itself. It's their cornucopian display of infinite abundance of every product all over the world at at all times. And humans have evolved in an environment of scarcity. The supermarkets have invested billions of dollars in working out exactly what triggers that homo sapiens animal to take and and the image of cornucopia in abundance the the huge displays of of massive variety and huge quantity of food in the natural system it would make total sense to take what you can and that's indeed what we do. We, we go into these, these environments, these supermarkets, and we fill our trolleys with more food than we can eat. You know, we are on record, on average, as throwing away between 20 and 25% of the food that we buy each week in these grocery stores, which is a total nonsense, waste of money, as well as waste of environmental impact. And on top of that, we also shove down our throats far in excess of what is good for us, good for our own health. If you look at all wealthy countries in North America and Western Europe, we have available in our shops and restaurants to us anywhere between 150 and 200% of our calorific requirements. That means that a country like the USA has twice as much food available to its population as is healthy for that population to consume. And that results in waste, it results in overconsumption. Mm. What's exciting, I think, at the moment in the food system is these disruptive businesses that are coming in and potentially presenting a real challenge to that entrenched supermarket system. Now, I don't think that the HelloFresh and Blue Apron businesses, these kind of meal kit delivery businesses, have started to use their potential position in the economy to rewire the food system. But I do think that something along those lines could come along and exactly address the issue you're talking about and be more of a supply-led food system than a demand-led one. So what I'm talking about is, at the moment, if a cauliflower farmer suddenly has loads of cauliflowers because the sun was shining, can't do anything about it, they all come out, And they call up their supermarket buyer and say, you know, can you put cauliflowers on promotion? Up to a point, the supermarket can promote cauliflowers. 
But because those cauliflowers are still alongside the lemons and the mojtu from Africa and the something else from Peru or whatever it is, it's very noisy in an environment like the supermarket. And you can't dictate to people what they're going to buy very effectively. In a meal kit delivery system, you could theoretically just say, okay, yeah, sure. You've got a glut of cauliflowers. We will respond to what nature has supplied and just put cauliflower cheese in everyone's meal kit this week or a stir fry with cauliflower in it. And that kind of rewiring, coupled with the fact that the meal kits you know, are being delivered, tailored to each family size, you can start to see how that could be a much leaner system. Indeed, I've you know, worked with one of these companies and found that in the households that are using them, the average waste is much less than on the part of supermarkets, precisely because the the meal kit is designed for for their family size. So, I, as I say, I don't think any of these companies are quite doing it yet, but you can see a food system emerging that could be, well, a bit more like the Airbnb for food, mm. matching a distributed supply base with a distributed customer base yeah. in ways that are much more efficient than having huge amounts of real estate, like hotels, in the middle of a city, just taking up unnecessary space and you know, being essentially quite wasteful. I signed up to a CSA myself. It's a community-supported agriculture. So every week, they just give me a box of whatever they have available rather than me picking like what they should give me. So collectively, we need to move towards a system where we're valuing more of what nature is able to provide us rather than putting pressure on what nature should provide us based on what we want. So I think CSA is it's obviously, and it's really, it's a great thing. I'm part of one myself. I also think that if we're going to change the mainstream of the food system, we do need to think about competing with the supermarkets on price and convenience. And I do think that's possible because, you know, the existing system has got an immense amount of waste entrenched in it. The waste that results from overstocking supermarket shelves, the waste that results in the ridiculous cosmetic standards that are laid down on farmers, so they waste all of their ugly fruits and vegetables, and the waste in our own homes when we're forced every week through very powerful marketing to buy more than we need, then we check it in the bin. That is a huge amount of wastage that lays that system open to a much more efficient competitor. And so I think we, you know, it can be done in a way that is mainstreamable. Mm. And is this similar to climate change in the sense that developed countries are contributing to more food waste issues compared to developing countries? For sure. Rich countries waste more on average than developing world countries. However, as my work in Kenya and Peru and Colombia and Ecuador and many other developing world producer nations has revealed and has been published through the charity Feedback, which I founded, the level of waste in those countries is still shockingly high. If one goes into the horticultural export sector, so this is where those farmers are growing food for us, the level of waste ultimately caused by us, by our supermarkets and their policies, is truly shameful. And I'm talking here about cosmetic standards that are laid down on farmers. You know, stuff has to be look perfect and anything that isn't quite often gets wasted and i'm talking also about the way in which supermarkets will give a kind of forecast of what they're likely to demand months in advance so the farmers grow to that forecast 
But then at the last minute, the supermarkets often only confirm orders that are very much at a variance with what's been grown. So they'll say, oh, you know, we've got some cheaper beans from Guatemala or our local farmers are still producing. Or no one wanted to buy beans anyway because it's not been sunny in London or, or, you know, all of these different factors. And the waste that results from that variability is dumped on the farmers who grew it. They just don't Mm. get a customer for their crops. So, I mean, I have visited farmers in all of these parts of the world and, you know, you meet them pretty much absolutely every one of them has experienced this kind of exploitative relationship with their with their buyers in the west and the result is that our study in kenya for example showed that around 50 percent of vegetables being grown for european markets were being wasted as a result of a combination of these these different factors truly shocking and Mm. we have run now some successful campaigns to tackle this, passed a, a law in the UK that stopped supermarkets from cancelling the order at the last minute in that way, got supermarkets to change their cosmetic standards to be much more relaxed about the way things look. There has been an, a, a vast improvement. I don't want everyone to get too depressed about it, <laughs> but alarmed, yes, by the extent of our environmental impact and the apparent slowness of our policymakers to, to turn this around. Mm. And in distinguishing what we have right now and what a sustainable food system can look like, you call what we have today a linear food system compared to what you've dreamed up as the goal, which is a circular food system. And I'm going to link in the show notes to your website where there are some really helpful graphics so that we can visualize this. But what is that major difference between these two systems? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't me that dreamed up a circular food system. That's what nature is. Nature is, there is no outside there's no beyond there's nowhere to throw stuff away everything is part of the system and if you look at a traditional food system plants produce food animals consume them some byproducts arise whether it's the beanstalks or inevitable amount of leftovers you domesticate an animal like a pig or a chicken to consume those leftovers upcycle it back into food produce manure which again feeds vegetables and everything feeds each other and humans are locked into that system in an integral way and what we're doing when we're producing a system of of that nature and, and tapping into it is we're just locking ourselves into a perfectly sustainable never-ending growth system you know, the sun produces this energy and plants convert that energy into biomatter, and that's the basis of our of our entire agroeconomy. Now, what we have with the industrial system is a system that has come along and claimed to be the most efficient way of producing large amounts of food for an ever-growing population. And not only that, but is projecting a population growth of 9 billion by 2050, increasing per capita consumption globally. And so you get these predictions that what we need is to increase food production by 50 or 100%, depending on your on who you're listening to. And the threat is that if we don't massively increase global production, there will be billions of starving people on planet Earth. Now, this industrial system and this claim that we need to double food production has got two things wrong with it. Um, the first is that actually the way in which we're increasing food is by increasing the amount of land that we're putting under cultivation. That means chopping down the forests of South America and Central Africa and Southeast Asia. 
thus potentially undermining planet Earth's ability to feed us in the long term at all. Uh, and the other problem with this particular claim that we need to double food production is that it's just wrong. We already have enough food to feed the human population of the Earth if we did that in a truly efficient way in all the ways that I've described, eating less meat and dairy and, and wasting less. And whilst there might be a case for, well, there is a case for increasing production in some localities, sub-Saharan Africa, for example, as a global trend, that is the very opposite of what we need. Mm. And therefore, this industrial systems claim to be super efficient. Once you look at just how wasteful it is, how linear it is, it just goes into a piece of land, you know, let's say removes all the forest that's there, grows commercial crops on it for a while depletes the soil that may have built up over millennia or, or even millions of years extracting nutrients from it mining the water table so every year the water table goes down a bit further killing off by the use of herbicides and pesticides all of the invertebrates and all of the the plants that invertebrates all the insects uh, feed on so that year after year there are fewer insects fewer flowering plants fewer birds, just depleting the whole ecosystem to the point that everything that you actually depend on to build soil, to pollinate your plants, to regenerate the water table through a good permanent presence of, of, of vegetation, all of those things just get knocked out in the name of increasing production and increasing efficiency. And the problem with that whole system is that they're measuring productivity per acre per year and not what we should be measuring, which is productivity per acre per millennium or even multiple millennia. And once you start factoring time into it, these extractive systems are very, very wasteful indeed, very inefficient and indeed very dangerous. Mm. Well, the final thing I want to touch on is in addition to just buying only what we need, avoiding wasting food on an individual level, and of course, supporting companies that are doing great things. What else can we do as consumers to help our food system go circular? Well, as I said earlier, there's simple things that we can do. I mean, that can be using your leftover porridge to make pancakes or your overripe bananas to make smoothies. And, you know, of course, we can do a certain amount in our own homes. But I do want to leap into the much more radical approach that I think if we don't talk about it, we're being irresponsible. And that is that the system is set up in a way that is causing the very rapid decline in the health of our living planet. It's happening in a way that really will cause the total annihilation of most of the natural world within a century. Half of wildlife has disappeared in my lifetime. This is a very real prospect, and you know, the human suffering that will result from climate change is, is also catastrophic if you look at where the trends are going. I think we need to escalate all of our efforts into emergency mode. I think that this requires not just a change in consumer behavior. We need to think of ourselves as citizens, not just consumers, as citizens of the world, not just citizens of any individual nation state. We need to transcend the nation state system that really perpetuates what I look at as the tragedy of the commons, 
where each nation state government is being paid to go into these international arenas and fight for the biggest slice of the cake that they can possibly get for their electorate. That's their job description. It's no fault of theirs that the system is set up in that way. But we do need to organize ourselves with a global consciousness. We need to wake up as a human species that inhabits this one home, planet Earth, and we need to rebel against the system that is extracting and destroying in the name of profit. Mm. That is no mean task. That is an existential question as to whether we are able to do that. When I look around and I see the school strike for climate, anyone who's been following that will have been inspired by how one young girl, 16-year-old Greta Thunberg, has ignited by now a million people at a time to go on strike and it's only a few months old, this movement. Wow, if we can build that into a global rebellion by the young saying we have no vote and no way of shaping the policies that are most affecting us. We are the, the young and the principal victims of this ecological meltdown that the current generation in power are creating. That's the kind of shift, the kind of global uprising. If you look at what Extinction Rebellion is trying to do globally and say, look, everything else has to just be put on pause for a moment while we say, look, this is a global existential threat. And so whilst I do think things start with changing the way in which we consume in our home to do it in a much more sustainable way, I think it needs to go beyond that as well. And I think to speak up for food as a linchpin issue within this, Food, as we've said, is, is the single biggest negative impact that humans have had on nature. And if we rewire the food system, it could be one of the single biggest tools that we use to undo many of the problems that we're creating in the natural world. But there is a third thing to say about food, and that is that it is so central to human culture and human society. I, I love the word companion. Companion literally means com is with and pan is bread. Companion is somebody you share food with. And human societies all over the world use the sharing of food to build community, locally, globally, nationally, across cultures. We love to eat each other's food. And that power of food to bring people together, as well as reconnecting us to nature, you know, it's literally how we put nature into our bodies on a daily basis, that power of food to organize us and empower us, empower us into creating a system that reflects our values. That is why I think campaigning on food and campaigning through food is so uniquely powerful. I've had immense fun over the last few months helping to feed the, the thousands of kids that turn up for the school strike for climate and that using food as a communication for what we need to do out in the world is is very, very powerful. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and for all the important work that you do. We would, of course, love to keep learning from you and supporting your work. So where can we follow you online and what is next for you guys? 
Well, the most exciting thing that I'm doing right now is this company that I created, Toast Ale. We turned waste bread into craft beer. We've been winning awards left, right, and center. We're brewing in seven countries. We're brewing on the east coast of the USA using locally sourced bread that, you know, like I say, surplus to requirements. And, and we're generating profits for charities that are trying to rewire the food system. This is a very exciting new business. I would encourage anyone in New York or Connecticut or Massachusetts where we're already stocked to go out and find some toast ale somewhere. We are growing rapidly, so we'll be elsewhere in the US fairly soon. We're already in a, in a bunch of other countries, South Africa and Brazil and the UK is our main business. So do follow Toast Ale. The charity I founded, Feedback which the website is Feedback Global. That is a fantastic system-changing charity. I will say I have no operational involvement anymore. I'm an ambassador and a champion of everything that Feedback is doing. I'm not in the office day-to-day uh, by any stretch anymore. It's fantastic director, Karina Millstone, is leading that organization and doing so absolutely brilliantly. And I think the final thing to say is, you know, I've produced these tiny little organizations doing great work. What we all need to do is look at how our tiny little efforts can be part of a emergence of a global super organism. I, I, I think we need to look for the connectivity, almost like the, the fungal mycelium, to connect all of us into the one big global effort to save planet Earth. Otherwise, our little organizational silos are just going to perpetuate uh, the system that has, has created the problem in the first place. What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow? School Strike for Climate. Everything going on there is so inspiring. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? We have only 1% chance of saving the Earth. This is not a reason to despair. It's a reason to put all of our energy into achieving that goal. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? I live in the countryside. My office is very often my earplugs, and I just take as much fresh air and go picking mushrooms while on a conference call. This is the way in which my well-being is guaranteed. <laughs> What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? I'm growing lots of my own food. That's always good fun. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? I believe in the power of partying, an almost hedonistic approach to environmentalism. If we show that we can have more fun than the destructive systems out there, people will come and join our sustainability party. Great people, beautiful people, wonderful food and drink. We've got to throw a better party than the people destroying it. <laughs> and what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? I believe that we should not let go of our grief and anger about the destruction of the natural world, but we should upcycle it into as much celebration and joy as we can sustainably create in our lives. So that even if we lose the battle to save nature, we've had wonderful, fun, beautiful lives together. 